This morning, we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew by diving back into this final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that Jesus preached with uh, what I might call countercultural clarity into the depths of our hearts. And this morning is no different as we continue to explore the way of the kingdom and the life of God's people. Only this time, in our text today, Jesus turns to the life of the community, the relationships that make up this community, and how life in the kingdom goes against many of our uh, natural tendencies requiring supernatural realignment. How do we live together in this family that God has created? How do we interact with each other? Not just when everything is good, but when things go bad, when we're not living like we're supposed to. What do relationships look like inside and outside our church family? What do kingdom relationships look like, in other words? Well, Jesus answers all of these questions with three different distinctions of kingdom relationships in our text. These three distinctions are what I call discerning clarity, continual dependence, and whole righteousness. And these distinctions are unique in any time and place, to be honest, including when Jesus preached this sermon. But I, but I think that, especially in our 21st century uh, enlightened and, and postmodern culture, these distinctions are not only necessary for God's people, they also shine brightly as an unmistakable beacon of God's gospel. And we cannot afford to ignore them just because they're kind of difficult to understand. So let me dive in. Jesus begins on our text by setting before us this first distinction of kingdom relationships, what I'm calling discerning clarity. Discernment is a word that means being able to uh, judge well, to judge with wisdom. To, to discern means to, to see clearly. And in this first section of our text from verses 1 to 6, Jesus is laying out that discerning clarity out in the context of kingdom relationships. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1. Do not judge. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These are famous words of Jesus, like, like many of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Unfortunately, though, I think that this particular text has become famous for the wrong reasons. You see, this is the passage that many of us turn to, whether we're inside or outside the church, to justify ourselves. Someone points out a fault or even worse, points out when we're doing something wrong, and we tell them not to judge us. We tattoo the words, no one can judge me across our hearts, all the while missing the way that our hearts darken every time we use that phrase, because don't, we use don't judge me more like a shield to protect our darkness rather than the sword that Jesus is wielding in this text to pierce our hearts. Remember where we are in this sermon. Jesus has rattled off example after example after example of how deep our righteousness must go in every area of our lives. He has exposed the self-righteous dark side of our hearts that, that like to be seen for our righteousness than actually cultivating righteous hearts after God. He's shown a light on what consumes us, pointing out the, the crossroads of serving God or money and the worry that can come down from being misled down the wrong road. And then Jesus commands us to not judge. Why? I think it's because Jesus is not naive. You see, in John 2, we read a piercing statement about Jesus. It says, Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind, about, about humans, about us, because he knew what was in each person. He knows our hearts, and he knows that his high demands for kingdom righteousness, a righteousness that he says must exceed that of the Pharisees, the most religious people of his day, can become a breeding ground for judgmentalism. 
Listen, Jesus is not telling his disciples not to make judgments, not to be discerning. I mean, look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at even the text we're going to be in next week. If you just turn the page, Jesus is warning us against false prophets. And how in the world can we avoid false prophets if we don't make the judgment whether they are false or true? The problem is not making judgments. It's being judgmental. And here's the difference. Making judgment requires wisdom and discernment and truth and reality. We, we make judgments all the time. It's how we navigate the world. Listen, some of you might know that I grew up in Miami, Florida, born and raised. We locked our doors and we made sure our cars had alarm systems. But I went to college at Taylor University where I experienced a different way of life because it was in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. And they left their keys in their visor and never locked their doors. In Miami, we learned to judge wisely. Car thieves and break-ins were common. In, in Indiana, there's one flashing red stoplight in the, the town that we were in. There's a lot less to be worried about. They made a different judgment. Human beings are made to make judgments, to discern, to sense danger and try to protect themselves and others. Jesus, to be clear, is not banning judgment. Jesus is banning judgment on steroids. Judgmentalism, which is not about making judgments but making magnified judgments. My parents, they gave our daughters a, a, a gift recently, binoculars. And my girls have been super fascinated by these, these, this new toy. And it's not because they like looking out the window at all the different birds and stuff. It's because they like looking all over the house with these new lenses. All the things that they've seen before, they want to see through the binoculars. I caught Lily reading books through binoculars at one point. They wanted to see things that are normally super close as if they're super far away, flipping them around, or things that are far away as if they're much closer. Judgmentalism is like seeing people through binoculars. Things that normally look small and insignificant are brought way closer for our incredibly important and enlightened perspective to pick apart. Jesus warns us, be careful. Because the weapon you wield against your sibling, your brother and sister in the faith, well, it cuts both ways. The binoculars you are using to pick apart the sins of your family in Christ will be turned against you one day. Don't judge. Why? Because if we do, we'll find that the same inspection we so carelessly subject our fellow Christians to will be much more carefully applied to us. Why does Jesus say this? I think he's warning us, yes, but I also think that Jesus in this process is revealing what happens when we operate judgmentally. He is, he's peeling back the facade that we pridefully try to cover our judgmental hearts with and shows us how distorted our view of reality is. You see, to continue with that binocular analogy, my girls, like I said, they, they love flipping the binoculars the, the wrong way and seeing everything that is normally close up as if it were really far away. It's something that's super trippy. It makes them giggle. But it's not so funny when that's how we view our own hearts. Seeing our own sin as, as farther away than it actually is. Smaller than it actually is. We minimize our sin while we magnify the sins of others. And judgment becomes judgmentalism in the name of righteousness. Jesus is not naive. He knows our hearts. He knows that we are not perfect, that we are still growing, and so he clarifies what relationships in the kingdom must look like, not just when things are going well, but when we sin, or even worse, when we sin against each other. Judgmentalism is a distortion of reality. But making good and wise judgments is all about seeing reality clearly, discerning with clarity, which is why I think Jesus uses such a ridiculous illustration to make his point. 
Look at the text, verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let me tell you, these are the moments that I just love Jesus because he is one of my favorite teachers. He can be like super funny and then turn on a dime and be super cutting at the same time. Just imagine what he, the illustration he's painting here for a minute. Imagine someone walking around with a plank sticking out of their eye. Not an eyelash for rubbing their eyes too much or a piece of grass when they're weed whacking without protective eyewear. Don't ask. That's a personal story. But a plank. The word Jesus is using here is most often used for a beam of wood that's used in a roof for support. Right? This, is, this isn't some, some stick or some small piece of two-by-four that's sitting in your garage. This is the exposed supporting beam and your, your house stained to look like HGTV sticking out of your eye. And we try to approach someone to take someone, something small out of their eye. I think here we have another reason that Jesus' command not to judge is, is not a command never to judge, but a command to reject and avoid and battle against the judgmentalism that rises in our hearts. Because even in his illustration... At the very end, the speck is still removed from the brother or sister's eye. The difference is not whether or not the speck is removed, but how we got there. Listen, I've told you before that I'm terrible at math. That any math you ever hear me use is just pastor math, which basically gives me a pass to be wrong 90% of the time. But my math teachers, well, they never gave me a pass. They always wanted me to show my work, even when I knew that I had the answer right. The reason they wanted me to show my work, especially when we got to more complicated math, is because there's an order of operations that matters. Right? Does anyone remember PEMDAS and like the acronym and parentheses and exponents? And I, everybody just cringed a little bit because they're out of school and they don't want to do math. The order matters because you can't just solve a problem left to right. If you do, you'll actually probably get the answer wrong. There's an order to which part of the math equation goes first. And if order matters in math, the more complicated it gets, how much more in relationships which are filled with all sorts of complexities, especially the complexities in our own heart. You see, I think here's Jesus' order of operations for kingdom relationships that he gives us in this illustration. Step one, he's calling us to see our plank. Before we even think about approaching our sibling in the faith about what may or may not be in their eye, we need to see what is in ours. We need to see our plank. We need to understand our own sin. We need to come face to face with our own hearts. Why? Because the problem of sin is not just that it distorts and slowly destroys us, but that it distorts everything we see, leading us to destroy rather than discern or help heal our brother or sister in Christ. In other words... Seeing ourselves truly allows us to see others truly. If we don't see ourselves truly, we will always see others falsely. Minimizing our sin and maximizing theirs. But it's not just enough to see, like, to just see your plank. Step two, Jesus calls us to repent, remove our plank. He tells us to take the plank out of our own eye first, which practically allows us to actually see others but I don't think it's just the result that matters. I think it's also part of the process. So the process of repentance is a humbling experience. It requires humility to say that what God says is right and what we have been saying and believing and doing is wrong. And I use the language of repentance here 
Because if we take the whole Bible into consideration, all of what Jesus said, even how he began talking about the kingdom he's preaching about right now, taking out our plank is an act of repentance. After all, we cannot take the plank out of our own eye. Only Jesus can do that. It is only humility that believes Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, that he died on a cross for our sins, that he rose from a grave to give us true life. It is only that kind of humility that actually removes the support beam from our critical eyes. And only then can we move on to the step three. See your familia and their speck clearly. I mean, before we try to help, it is only after we've experienced the humility of repentance, the compassion of our Savior, that we can actually see our fellow image bearers, other believers, siblings in the faith, truly. We see them with compassion, which does not ignore the speck, but does not pretend that the speck is all that they are does not distort people into problems to correct, but sees them clearly as familia to love. It is only then can we do what Jesus tells us to do. Step four, remove the speck. Have you ever tried to take something out of someone's eye, like that they couldn't get themselves and they needed your help? It's really hard. Right? The instinct is to close your eye the moment they get close. You have to be delicate. One pastor I was reading made this point, and I think it's incredibly insightful. The, the eyes, they're delicate, so we have to be careful. We have to be patient. And Jesus isn't really talking about eyes here. We're dealing with souls, the souls of our brothers and sisters. How much more delicate should we be? How careful and compassionate and tender should we be when we try to correct and, and try to help and try to help someone heal? Jesus tells us, that we need to be as careful as we would be if we were dealing with our own souls. Skip ahead to verse 12. Jesus sums up what he's been teaching. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, we know this verse is the golden rule, and we'll get to it more at the end this morning, but I want to bring it up here because it is a reminder that do not judge is actually a command to be compassionate, to be caring, to be gentle, to treat others like we would want to be treated, not with hypercriticism, but with empathetic love. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've read, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But that's not just perfection in morality. That's also perfection in love. Don't be judgmental, my family. What does it mean to see what Jesus has saved us from? The, the sin that continues to entangle our hearts and be driven by that reality, not just to Jesus, but to compassion when we see each other walking down the wrong path. When we see each other entertaining something deadly, either in ignorance or stubbornly. May it lead us to the words of Galatians 6, where Jesus teaches through the writing of Paul that if someone is caught in a sin, we who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But we must watch ourselves, or we may also be tempted. Jesus tells us to carry each other's burdens, and in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. Do not be judgmental. Discern clearly. See yourselves clearly so that we can see each other clearly. And then together live out the life of the kingdom clearly. Do not be judgmental. But Jesus also says, do not neglect discernment. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Whoa, Jesus. That was a hard left turn. We're talking about compassion and now we're talking about cruel name calling. What's happening here? I kind of wanted to skip this verse this morning. I want you to remember our theme of relationships in this text. And I want you to also remember that Jesus is a straight shooter. 
which means that I have to preach texts like this sometimes. Jesus is here using an image that may be offensive and, and, and is offensive, but would be immediately understandable to his audience right in front of him. You see, culturally, dogs and pigs were not nice animals in Jesus' day. Right? These aren't the pets that curl up with you on the couch. Right? The things that we go visit at the petting zoo. Right? This isn't Paw Patrol or Pepper Pig for all the parents that are in the room. Dogs were feral and ferocious. Scavengers who roam and were despised by everyone. Pigs were unclean and greedy and vicious. Wild boars with short fuses and sharp tusks. I actually think we get so caught up in wondering who Jesus is referring to here. And, and how could Jesus call anyone a dog or a pig that we actually miss what he's saying here? Essentially, I think Jesus is teaching his disciples to, to be careful in judgment. But, but listen, you can't avoid it. There, there is a limit. I want you to, to bring you to another text. Peter writes about false prophets and unrighteous people in 2 Peter chapter 2. And this is what he says. And here's why I'm bringing you here. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow, a pig, that is washed, returns to her wallowing in the mud. The same kind of imagery that Jesus used. There are some people, no matter what we do, no matter how often the gospel is preached, no matter how much we love them and serve them, not only go back to their own ways, but like Jesus says, will actually turn on us. Their hostility, their antagonism has cultivated a resistance, not just to the gospel that inoculates them against the love of Jesus, but it changes indifference into hate for everything that has to do with God. Something like this happens. We should not be ignorant. But let me also be clear. Verse 12 is the rule Jesus gives us, and verse 6 is the exception, not the other way around. We cannot be too quick to categorize people with the way Jesus does in, in verse 6 and just assume that we have everything right. Jesus calls us to discernment and compassion. Jesus is patient with us. He is merciful and compassionate and calls us to be patient with each other, like I read in Galatians 6, to carry each other's burdens. But Jesus is not going to force his kingdom or his gospel on anyone. And so what Jesus says here in verse 6 is something we realize with tears in our eyes and prayer on our lips, entrusting people to God, knowing that ultimately he is the only one who can make dogged and pig-headed hearts translated into hearts that love him. This is not something we wield and kind of reverse Jesus's do not judge command and get judgmental. But it is a reality. And I think what Jesus is doing here is, is realizing that sometimes his demands for love, they're, they're translated into our hearts as a lack of discernment. And we just keep doing and keep doing and not realizing that at some point he tells us to wipe the dust off our feet. But I also think that sometimes, Jesus realizes that sometimes his demands for righteousness are translated into our hearts into judgmentalism. We try to get self-righteous with it. Jesus is here calling us to neither of these. He's calling us to more. To discerning clarity that loves righteously. But like Paul cries out in 2 Corinthians, even as I say this, I, I felt this while preparing this, and I wonder if I've even kind of created the feeling here. Who is sufficient for these things? How are we supposed to know this and do this and live out the kind of kingdom relationship Jesus is calling us to, where we love people sacrificially, but also realize that there's limits? How am I supposed to know what the limit is and who I... Jesus' answer in this text is continual dependence on the king of the kingdom. You see, our natural inclination is to either be judgmental 
or to avoid correcting anyone. But we are no longer bound to our natural instincts. When Jesus saves us, he gives us new hearts and by the Spirit cultivates supernatural instincts that continually depend on God in prayer. Look at verse 7. Ask and it's going to be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Our relationship with each other is dependent on our relationship with the Father because His kingdom turns normal relationships upside down. Instead of criticism, we have compassionate correction. Instead of weak tolerance, there are righteous limits. And it's all for the good of others and the glory of the king. But the only way to be this different is to be super dependent. And so Jesus, having taught us to pray multiple times already in this sermon, I find it super fascinating that Jesus stops every so often to teach us new about prayer. It's the only thing he repeats over and over again in his Sermon on the Mount. It's because he knows that what he's teaching is going to require a lot of prayer. The Spirit of God to work through us to be able to live this out truly. So Jesus, having taught us to pray multiple times, he turns back to prayer in our text and he teaches us to ask, to seek, to knock. The the language he's using here is is like a, a, a stair step of increasing engagement with our Father. It's not some uh, a kind of hierarchy for prayer warriors or, or, or things that we do if we just need to convince God a little bit more to help us out. We already, know that he, we already know that he knows what we need before we ask. We also already know that empty repetitions, they don't get his attention. We already have his attention as his children. And so like a good father, God is shaping us by teaching us how to pray. He's shaping us with persistence and with trust. I say persistence because these commands, ask, seek, and knock, I don't like doing this all the time, but, but I don't have any other way of showing it. In the original language, they're, they're not just ask once, seek once. It's, it's the sense of more like keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. In other words, Jesus is teaching us to be persistent, not because we have to convince God, but because we trust our Heavenly Father and He is shaping us. And we trust I think out of this text, because Jesus assures us it will be given. You will find. The door will be open. Now, let me be clear. Not some blank check for prayer. This isn't a prayer wand. You can just wave whenever you want and be like, poof, got my Corvette. Sorry. That one cut deep for some people. This isn't a blank check for prayer. What Jesus is teaching us is having confidence in prayer. God will not give us whatever we ask, but he will not leave us wondering if he did not, if he, as if he heard. He will not give us whatever we ask, but he will not leave us wondering if he heard. We're not going to find any treasure we're looking for, but we will find every treasure that he promises. He does not open every door for us, but he will always open when we knock at his door. And this persistent trust, Jesus says, is something that's for everybody. There's no uh, leveling up for prayer warriors. There's no extra access for the really committed. There's no secret handshake or special knock that gets us to his riches. Because of Jesus, we need only ask, seek, and knock. And keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. And we will receive, find, and the door will be swung wide open. Some of you may know that my, uh, my first language is Spanish. Not because I'm better at Spanish, but because it was the first language I spoke. I learned English when I started school when my parents... They helped me by speaking English at home, but there, there came a point when my English started to become better than my Spanish, and so my parents did something that was very cruel but strategic, and I thanked them for it years later. 
They stopped responding to me when I spoke in English. They wanted me to keep my Spanish, and so they would only respond when I spoke in Spanish. Dad, I'm hungry. ¿Qué? ¿Qué es hungry? My dad would say. No Spanish, no comida, no food. I had to ask again in Spanish. And you see, my parents, they were retraining me in Spanish. In a similar way, God calls us to persistent asking, not because he doesn't understand us, but because he is training us in the language of the kingdom, a language of continual dependence. Not because he is ignorant of our needs, but because we tend to be ignorant of who really supplies all of our needs. And so more than just giving us what we ask, God is about making us into a certain kind of people who continually depend on their king for everything. And so Jesus illustrates this with, I think, another ridiculous illustration. Look at verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Who of you, Jesus asked, would take one of these flat stones from the, the Sea of Galilee and swap out your child's bread and then watch as they crack their teeth on it? Who would you would take a snake and swap out your child's fish and watch as they were attacked? None of you would. How ridiculous. L- listen, he says, you would never do that. Even you, with the sin that has twisted your heart and the rebellion that has turned you away from God, even you know what it means to be kind to your children when they ask. And so if that's true of you, even though your hearts are blackened by sin, how much truer is that of God who is holy and without sin? He not only knows how to give good gifts, he only gives good gifts. And he gives those good gifts to those who ask him. Children of the king who ask their father in heaven. Familia, I don't want you to just be persistent. And I don't want you to just entrust yourself to the God who answers. I want us to pray knowing in the depths of our hearts that he only gives good gifts. What if we were to pray, not just for healing when our bodies are broken, or provision when our bank accounts are empty, though those are good and perfectly reasonable prayers to pray, what if we were also to pray for kindness when we struggle with really annoying people? What if we were to pray for truth-telling when we were tempted to lie, or endurance when we feel ourselves slipping into old sin patterns? What if we were to actually pray, not just sometimes, but, but constantly and consistently for the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians? For love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. What if we prayed that we would be able to better bear one another's burdens? To love one another. What if we kept praying? Asking and seeking and knocking. Knowing that he is training us to depend on him. Knowing that he always gives good gifts when we ask for them. God is good, loving, and a wise father. Which means he always answers even if he doesn't always answer yes. Familia, he is training us to be continually dependent. And the only way our horizontal relationships will work in this family is if we're all cultivating our vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father in prayer. It's the only way to be able to discern with clarity. It's the only way to live out the righteousness of the kingdom. Look at verse 12 again. Jesus gives us this rule and he says, in everything. In everything. Jesus demands our entire lives, our everything, his kingdom righteousness, it reaches into every corner of our lives. And so the only way we can live this out is if we humbly approach our Father, trusting him to give us good gifts, persistently asking and seeking and knocking, being shaped with a heart that is continually dependent on him. Because this is not just righteousness for those who are inside the church family. This is how we are righteous with those who are outside the church family. 
do to others as you would have them do to you. This is for all the others we might encounter. The relationships in this text are not just relationships within the family of God. They're not just the relationship we have with the God who made us family, but now turning to our last point in verse 12, they're also relationships with all the people God is on mission to make into family. And that requires not just discernment and dependence, but whole righteousness. A righteousness that reaches into every area of life, every corner of our hearts and every relationship we have, and fills it with love and compassion and truth and grace. This is what Jesus' sermon has been about this whole time. A kingdom righteousness that isn't satisfied just to make some things about us righteous, but to make us completely in every area of our lives righteous. And this is something that will take our entire lifetime, yes, but it doesn't mean we're not striving for it. And so Jesus teaches us in verse 12, and everything, do. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Here's the golden rule that is maybe more famous than Jesus' words at the beginning of our text, do not judge. It's a rule that's taught in kindergarten and repeated as like a, a cultural proverb. But what I love about this verse is not just how nice it is, but how radical, how brilliant it is on Jesus' part. You see, Jesus is essentially summing up what he has been saying for multiple chapters in this sermon. And he's giving us this almost family slogan meant to guide us in everything we do. One scholar describes it as both powerful and flexible. One 20th century preacher, J.C. Ryle, he wrote, It settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. You see Jesus' brilliance? Instead of multiplying if this, then that situations, he lays out one guiding principle. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Correct to heal rather than hurt. Discern to limit rather than waste. Live with relationship in mind and heart. Not focused on self, but focused on relationships. I mean, look at what he actually says. So often we see this verse and we see Jesus and imagine him leveraging our self-love for his kingdom purposes as if it's utilitarian, a, a means to an end. And I think there might be some of that here, but I think that on a even deeper level, Jesus wants us to live with relationships in our minds and in our hearts because whole righteousness is only ever lived out in community. It's never lived in isolation. Do to others, for others, with others, as you would have them do to you, for you, with you. In other words, do with relationship. At the center. Not ourselves, not our opinions, but the love that should be flowing between us and our siblings in the faith. Why? Because the NIV says this sums up. The ESV says this is the law and the prophets. In other words, relationship is at the center of everything Jesus has revealed to us. The gospel is about making things right with God and us, but also making things right with each other. The message of grace and love and mercy and truth and holiness and sin and righteousness is not just about individuals with God, but a family that's created by God. People that are brought back into relationship with the Father, with these new siblings in the faith. Which is why Jesus calls us to prayer, training us to communicate with the Father and trust rather than doubt. Why Jesus reminds us constantly that God is our Heavenly Father. Why Jesus spends so much time clarifying righteousness, not for ourselves but for others, right? Showing mercy being peacemakers, it's because relationships are created by and centered in the gospel, and together they are the law and the prophets, everything God has been revealing to us in his word. Jesus has been warning us, right? Look at the text. He's been warning us against judgmentalism, and he uses future judgment to do that. In an illustration, he points out our evil hearts. He emphasizes this new relationship with the Father, and now he ends here by, by referring to the law and the prophets. This is why I'm emphasizing the gospel here. 
Because two chapters ago, Jesus also talked about the law and the prophets. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, to get rid of them, to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Why does Jesus start a very long section on righteousness with this verse? And why does he end again here with this verse? Because everything he calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount is only possible because Jesus went first. He calls us to an obedience that sums up the law and the prophets only after he has told us that he is the one who sums up, fulfills the law and the prophets. Jesus makes demands on our lives only after he has saved our lives. He tells us how to live only after he has raised us from being dead in sin and now being alive in him. Jesus says our hearts are evil. We often ignore the planks in our own eyes and try to lord it over others, but there is hope. Jesus is our hope. Not only to see the sin that blinds us, and not only to save us from future judgment, but to give us new hearts now in order to live out life in the kingdom here and now. That's why this church family, it's why we are obsessed with the gospel. Or we talk about being gospel-centered. Because without the gospel telling us who he is and who we are, not only can we not do what he calls us to do, but we would be hopelessly lost in our sin. It's why together this morning, I want us to respond to this text with the spiritual practice of communion. A rhythm that reminds us of how lost in sin we were without him and how his salvation is not just for the beginning of our lives in Christ, but the only thing that sustains our lives in Christ together. I mean, it's together that we gather around the Lord's table, the the table that Jesus set for us on the night that he was betrayed, the table he invites us to, the table he paid for us to have a seat at by his cross and resurrection. As we prepare to eat, we need to remind ourselves that we gather here to show our love our love for one another, and our love for our Lord Jesus, but we also gather to remember, to remember his love, the price that he paid, what it cost to save our lives from our sin and our rebellion. We gather as an act of love for Jesus and for each other and as an act of remembrance, and we gather to receive the grace that Jesus communicates to us in this spiritual practice, how he shapes us as a loving, remembering, sacrificial people who correct to heal rather than hurt who discern to limit rather than waste, who, who pray to our Father with, pers- with persistent trust rather than doubt and live out our new relationship with Him and with each other together. And so as we prepare to eat and drink, I'm going to invite us to actually open up the bread and the cup together. Yes, so that we can get the crinkling out of the way, but more than that, because when it comes time to eat and drink, I want us to be able to do it together, all of us. So you can open and make all the crinkling noises now. All right, ready? Still hear the crinkling. Familia, in the light of our salvation and the gospel, we proclaim in this meal, this meal that we call communion. God's word, it warns us before we take. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so we, before we participate, I actually want us to take a moment to examine ourselves. 
to recognize the gravity of our sin, but to also recognize the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice for us. And so I want us to take a moment to confess our sins together, but in silence for a moment. God of compassion, this morning we come to you. You are the God who is rich in mercy to all those who call upon you, and so we come humbly confessing our sins. We confess our sinful love of things that have no value, or things that have the wrong values, or even having the right values in the wrong order. We confess our prideful arrogance and stubborn posture. We confess our worldly attachments that we nurse along, justifying ourselves and rationalizing our idols. Lord, we confess how we sometimes, out of pride and anxiety, shamelessly question your goodness and your love. We confess the doubts we nurture about the reliability of your promises, saying, not only like the serpent in the garden, did God really say, but wondering like the Israelites in the wilderness, Will God really provide for us? These sins and many more we confess to you. Believing that like your word says, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for saving us. We proclaim your salvation as we eat this bread, receiving your body broken for us, knowing that we are saved the moment we believe, but that we are also growing in righteousness. Would you make us more like Jesus? Amen. Well, let's hold up the bread together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 24, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. Father, this past week we have been emotionally pulled in so many directions by so many different circumstances that have left us disordered and in chaos. This morning we have come needing your assurance that your grace is enough to see us through. And it is here and now that you have communicated that to us, not just through your bread, but through this cup. We believe that your grace is enough. In fact, we believe that it is more than enough and has no limit. Your grace is enough to hold us, enough to strengthen us, enough to shield us from eternal harm, enough to help us triumph over every difficulty, enough to provide for us all the way to heaven. We are no longer afraid. We are no longer defeated because we believe right here and right now and for every day that comes our way that your grace, Jesus, is more than enough for us. Your blood spilled for us proves that. And so we ask that you help us remember every time we forget. 
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our intercessor. Amen. So raise the cup together. Paul continues in chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way also Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Paul ends in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, saying this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Familia, at this table, we remember the gospel that saved us. We declare our love for Jesus and for one another, and we proclaim the gospel that will see us through to the end because his grace is more than enough. So may this table continue to point us to the greater meal we'll have in heaven one day together. Until we get there, would you pray with me in hope? Good Father who gives good gifts to his children, this morning we pray that you would give us the gift of never letting us forget what we have just proclaimed. Instead, having the gospel imprinted on our hearts, may we grow and increase every day in the faith, which is at work in every good deed you have called us to do. In every way, may we order our lives around your gospel and pursue your glory and your will as we love you above everything, as we love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray, entrusting ourselves to you, that you teach us to be continually dependent upon you, to discern not be so judgmental to remember what you have saved us from and help us to communicate your gospel. We pray all these things in the merciful, merciful name of Jesus. Amen.